Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is Steven Williams, also known as Nerdsgold Roleplay. He's an awesome content creator who's a adamantine gold seller on the DMs Guild. And actually his content I use myself, so I can attest to how great it is. In this we talk about the process of becoming a creator, self-publishing, difficulties running into that, and also what type of content he likes to create. Enjoy this episode. Welcome all to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is Stephen Williams. Stephen, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Stephen Williams, better known online as Nerzigal, the creator of Nerzigal's Dungeon Master Toolkits and Game Master Toolkits. Yeah, Steve does actually a lot of fantastic content. As I explained in the intro already, this is content I believe in because it's content I've used, purchased, and have incorporated into even my own homebrew games. So if my players are listening right now, um, maybe some of these ideas you may have heard before if you just happen to get his content on your own. But um, I actually love Steve's content, and I want to start talking about that in one second. But before we get to all that, Steve, let's talk about your beginnings. How did you get into RPGs? Yeah, I was always interested in them, but I grew up in a very small rural area, so I never really got the chance to get together with a group of friends to play until pretty much college, and I only played a couple times, but I really kicked off when I started working full-time and work as a programmer, so luckily there's a lot of other nerdy individuals who work alongside me and just found some other co-workers who were interested, and once we started playing, I, I haven't stopped since we've been playing uh with that group or different groups every week for pretty much five or six years now. What were your first systems? First system I used was uh, third edition, but I played Pathfinder for a while when we started our main campaign that I first got into dungeon mastering was Pathfinder. Uh, and then once fifth edition came out, we went full board and that's what I've been using ever since. You know, it's funny. It's like I had so many people on this podcast come from either an IT a development, some sort of technical background, even technical writing. I, I, do you think it's that kind of love of structure and analytical and numbers and, and figuring strategy stuff out that kind of pushes us towards RPGs? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, I feel like there's probably a lot of overlap with you know, nerdiness and like gamer uh, gamers and programmers kind of go hand in hand, and if you're a gamer, you're probably into RPGs to some extent and diving into that world. And would you say then that it was easy for you to kind of pick up the game? Oh yeah, like as soon as I started playing, I knew I was I was hooked hard, and I haven't been able to stop. I uh, it's it's an addiction at this point. <laughs> wow, an addiction—that's an interesting way to put it. So, did you start off as a player, or did you sw switch into GMing really quickly, or how'd that go? I think I played two sessions as a player with random one shots I did with people, and then once we, you know, were starting to form the group, they they were like, "Who wants to be the DM?" And I was pretty quick to hop onto that role because I always really liked the idea of being a dungeon master, and I still really enjoy being a dungeon master, though I do uh, act as a player quite a bit as well now as two 
Yeah, it's fun. I, I know there's something of a dungeon master, game master's curse. I found out from a lot of people that I talked to that like when you've been doing it for a while, uh, you know, several years, unless you've got a homebrew world or some like solid set um, foundation to the storytelling, you end up being the guy who's like, or gal, sorry, uh, who's, you know, kind of like, well, you know, I love to be a player, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of married to this big world or all these ideas or all these characters that I have. And, you know, every time you have a uh, opportunity to play, people will turn to you and be like, well, you've got everything already. And you're like, yeah, yeah I kind of do. So I'll just fill in this little role, right? Yeah, I feel like I have a very uh, non-standard group that I've played with because every single person in the group that I first started playing with wanted to be a dungeon master, as I think except one player. So we had a group of six and everyone wanted to DM. Uh, so we had never had any troubles. As soon as I finished my first campaign, I handed it off to someone else. And then another friend started a second campaign that we played during the week. So I've played with a bunch of different dungeon masters, but I still love being behind the, the screen. That's really nice. Actually. I, I, I didn't start that way, but what's funny is along the path of my longest running game, which is over four years now, along the, the, the path of us playing together, I think now every single person, just about, yeah, I think every single person is DM'd. And now may run their own game, uh, either at work or at their house or stuff like that, which is different because I think when we started, uh, nobody had really ran the game before. And it was one of those questions that like we were all kind of looking at each other like, all right, well, who's, you know, who's going to draw the, the shortest straw? And I kind of took, you know, I kind of took over f- from there. But ever since then, now everybody's uh, done that. And I would say I think it definitely gives you a different appreciation for the role of the dungeon master or the game master once you've done it at least one session yourself. Mm-hmm. It's... Yeah, a lot of people are intimidated until they're at the table, and then it might, you know, get a little more interested. But when you're going in fresh, you've never played Dungeons and Dragons, and you're you need to be the dungeon master. Then it's really frightening because you're kind of responsible for making sure everyone else at the table is having a good time. And if you are all clueless, and you know, we kind of fell through together with our cluelessness, and it was it was a lot of fun, but be intimidating so it's definitely not for everyone yeah 1000 percent. but i will say now i mean you've gotten into this recently and i think i've you and i are not too dissimilar and when we got into the game um we have such a plethora of resources as to what an rpg should be what a a good dungeon master or tips on being a good dungeon master out there we're kind of lucky in that regard because we just have all the resources yeah now especially i mean when i first started playing there was uh the role play series on youtube that i watch if you know mejp mm-hmm. uh that that crew uh i started watching that and that's what really got me wanting to play D again once i started working I was like, this just looks like so much fun this is everything i wanted to be and it was like one of the first it was the first you know actual play podcast that i had watched but now i look now and they're just everywhere they're all over twitch all over youtube and it's awesome you never have a shortage of content well when we're talking about never having a shortage of content, how much of that then bleeds into what you create in your world? Like, was your first homebrew stuff, was it based off of just modules or things you pick up from officially published material? Or is it watching and listening to other dungeon masters or streamers? I I pretty much always uh, create my own homebrew worlds and do everything myself, uh, which... I put all the content out there, but I just love that creative side and making things and putting it together. And so that's that's one of my uh, passions is just creating these world, creating monsters, creating NPCs, cities. And so I almost exclusively use things that I've made myself, except I, I pull monsters from a lot of different sources. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, it's all pretty much stuff that I've come up with. So how do you go from the process of making something for yourself 
into then wanting to release something? Is it just over time being like, damn it, this is so cool. I think more people should see it, right? That's how it started out. Uh, a lot of my first toolkit, that was quite a few years ago at this point, it was mostly just things that I'd used in my first campaign. I was like, well, the player's about to do this dungeon. Let me get it laid out and formatted in a really structured way that I know I can handle anything that they throw at me. And once I'd gotten like four or five of those, six of those, I was like, there's a lot of interesting content here. And with like just a little bit of work, I think I could transform this into something that other people could use. And I'd seen the DMs Guild, so I was like, let me just take some of the puzzles I have and some of the, the one shots I'd run on the side just with ideas I'd had in my head and then all the dungeons that I've used in my own campaign and I'll just put them together and put it out there and see if people like it and then I had like an amazing response and blew up and so I put a lot more passion to it after that so now I actually have a process where you know I'll get inspiration write these ideas down and uh, set time aside to try to you know brainstorm and ask people if they have anything they want to do it's a little more difficult once you've been in it for a while and you know you've made 30 or 40 one shots ideas don't come as as easily as they did before and would you say you change the way you format your adventures now because you understand that there's a potential or you know you're exclusively making this for release for other people I do usually when I do dungeons for my own players I I kind of follow that format it's still really really light I don't go nearly as in-depth as I do for like a full release product, but I try to lay everything out the same way so I can have it in my back pocket for if I want to release it as a product. It's pretty easy to convert. Usually it's just fleshing it out more, adding more details, you know, specifics about the monsters scaling out across all the levels. Uh, and then once I, I go through there a little bit, I'll often add additional content. And speaking of putting yourself up online, I know you talked about the Dungeon Masters Guild, which is a great resource, but they, I know, released official um, documentation and kind of tips as to the, the best way to put together an adventure, the best way to put together a module. Did you use any of that or did you just figure it out by trial by error? For my first one, it was it was just trial by error. It was, it was over four years ago at this point. And so it wasn't quite as big as it is now. And so I just... It's like, let me put this in a format that I think is easy to read. I didn't use any guides or anything. There's very little art in there. It's all stuff that I just kind of drew up and is not good. Uh, I've gone back through and done like a new release where it's cleaned up a little bit more. Uh, but the, yeah, the initial one was this is pretty, pretty rough. But that's why I made it pay what you want. I was like, well, it's, no, it's not an official piece of content like the Cobalt Press or anyone like that. It's just kind of me throwing some stuff out there and maybe people will like it was where I started. And then with my, as I went on to my additional products, there's, I, I tried to look into other works that people done and some of the official products a little more and try to follow those standards. And every product I make, I, I change a few things up and try to make things easier to use. And then especially with the digital products, doing things like bookmarking when you get to the end of the line and indexing things that I just wasn't thinking about to start that is really important to people. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of things you mentioned that you didn't think about that you're now considering it of. I mean, one of the biggest ones we were talking a little bit before we started the podcast was like the difficulties of art and getting either commissioned to art or getting art to be featured in your content. So can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, arts, it's very expensive if you want to get the good stuff. And I've had like a lot of people complain uh, about you know the quality of art in my books and how they wish there was more of it. And you know, at the end of the day, like uh, you know, I, I do make money off these, but not like a tremendous amount. I don't do kickstarters for my products or haven't. Uh, and so I'm supposed to you know front three thousand dollars for art. That's it's a lot on the kind of gambling, hoping that people will buy this product. And so uh, for my second and 
or my, the last few products I've done, they've had budgets anywhere between uh, $500 and $1,500 just for art alone. And that's just, I kind of have more of a, a sketch art style with the artist I, I use. And so they're not full color or anything. They're just like really detailed, uh, like pencil drawings, black and white. I really, I actually really like the style of it. Kind of feels like it has this old school style and I appreciate it a lot. But you look at some of the full color art that, you know, the, the big producers put out there and it, it costs thousands of dollars to get artists to do that kind of quality work if you're paying them fairly. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you're listening to the podcast and you've listened to any of the previous episodes, Mark How Foolish actually talks uh, in depth with me about uh, the difficulties of doing that and how much thousands of dollars, I think, just like you mentioned, it takes to get um, artists out there. But what I will say, it's very evident, though, because you mentioned getting quite the following now and quite the amount of downloads and uh, purchases. Um, it's very evident though, the quality that when you put the quality there, people appreciate that while you, you might've bemoaned, I think you're kind of, um, kind of hand-drawn style and there is a great novelty to that too but also the fact that you put in enough polish into it that people feel it's worthwhile because that's actually one of the things i wanted to talk about it's so difficult to talk about i think for a lot of artists is determining price points like you just mentioned you're spending 500 to 1500 dollars on a thing how many and you don't have to disclose numbers but how many actual downloads or sorry uh purchases do you expect will you make a return or is this a passion project you know yeah i mean I've always considered a passion project and I've even had people kind of criticize the, the way the pricing model I've used. So I, I've done uh, all of my content except my most recent release have been pay what you want releases. And so I have like suggested prices in there. The first one's like $10. I think my most recent one was $20 and it's almost 300 pages of content. So I feel it's pretty fair, especially given the amount of work and the art that goes into it. But the kind of experience I had was that if a bunch of people buy it at a low price point, it makes you more popular, more people get a hold of it. And so it, it's kind of that uh, more people hear about it and so more people download it. And so more downloads means inevitably more people purchasing it. Even if it's at a lower price point, you end up making more money in the long run and more people get to experience my content. Because I remember the days when I was you know, poor college student and it's hard to buy some of those big modules and so having it pay what you want i've had quite a few people message me saying they bought it and really enjoyed it and then gone back and paid for it as well because they enjoyed the content so much and so i kind of like that idea of you know having it free for anyone to use and those who can contribute do contribute but it also puts pressure on other creators because when they want to come in at a 10 or 15 dollar price point now they are competing with me with my free product and so i'm like i kind of deal with that guilt of like potentially hurting other people who are up and coming with uh, having my free products out there and so it's it's a it's a tricky world of choosing your price point. oh absolutely i mean my background is in economics so it's funny getting into this hobby and then trying to uh, watch kind of through the years this be go from a hobby for most people a passion project to in a few cases, professional we have professional dungeon masters now, which I thought was really funny to say. But yeah, go on Twitch or ch check out you know these guys who charge to play with them on their Patreons. Uh, like we have professional dungeon masters, we have obviously content that's being released by the main publishers and the people who own the IP. But then all this tertiary and uh, extra stuff that we're creating ourselves, or Cobalt Press is creating, or all these you know Green Ronin and all these other people are creating. So I've always been interested in the economics of it. And like you made a great point there, which is you know you make great content, and when you choose also. So pay what you want. Yes, you might maybe uh, make up the difference by having more sales. But then, you know, Joe or Jane Schmo, who's just starting their own thing, is going to have to go up against your amazing content. So that, that does put you in an interesting place. But I also understand, like, because you do physical copies as well, right, Steve? 
Yeah. So you can't uh, really not have to charge there because there's nothing you can do. You have to charge something. That's exactly right. Yeah, I I, I do charge for those and make a, a pretty, I think it's like eight bucks I make on average for those books. Yeah, so that that's a situation where you don't even really have a choice. Like it's a material good. You can't just say no. Yeah, I can't. I can't let people pay what you want for the physical book. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that was one of the troubles I had with the drive-through RPG system. If I wanted to, they, the way they had it set up was if you wanted to go back through and add a physical copy, uh, I couldn't like change my product to be cost or have the PDF be free and have the, a charge for the books. And so those are still pay what you want, but you have to pay at least what it costs to manufacture and ship the book. And so. <laughs> It's it's a weird one. So some people will literally pay the cost of the book on that site, and so they'll get a really really cheap book. I make like one cent or nothing, and then other people will pay forty bucks for it, and I'll make you know, twenty bucks. So you've kind of now kind of dealing with either uh, uh, the difficulties of having to obviously figure out the right price point, and deal, dealing with the difficulties of finding the um, right artists and things like that. Um, do you find yourself now because you're making content and you and you're you know charging for content? Do you find yourself ever feeling like, well, I'm technically a professional now. I mean, I'm getting paid for this. Like, do you consider yourself a professional or still a hobbyist? I, I think with the amount of time I put into it, it's still a hobbyist. Though I, I might be professional at this point with uh, the success I, and like the, I think the quality of my content is pretty high, especially with the physical books. Except a lot of work to put those out, but I couldn't like quit my job to do this, this sort of thing. So I still consider it a hobby in that regards. Oh yeah, I mean I know I've interviewed even some people here that have been doing this for good god twenty or so more years, and they admit the same thing. They're like, I still got a day job. Like the, there's little to you know few people who could actually make a living off of this um, type of thing. But it is interesting because there's so many skills that you do pick up from it. If it's not already, of course, in your background from before. I mean, I know some people are technical writers and used to writing content. So there's a, a little bit of a, a cross uh, pollination going on between there. But, you know, do you put this on your CV when, you, when you're going into interviews or anything like that? Do you mention this? I mean, yeah, I put that I'm a you know small business owner and that I've written you know hundreds of pages of book downloaded by tens of thousands of people and edited laid it out got you know managed the project artists everything around it is i'm i'm in a leadership role in my company now and i think a lot of my role-playing experience fed into the capabilities i have in this role so it's helped me a lot in my actual career which skills do you think the most uh, out of your role-playing it contributed to your success and career because this is something I'm interested in because I'll say this coming from a economics you know analytical background I'm more of an introvert and I'm not like a social person until I think I started playing and now running you know mostly three games now I'm currently running I run so much that I realize that people are like you an introvert get out of here like you're so you know social and you and and I realized like I guess yeah because I've had to sit at a table or look at a screen with people for you know so very long, I've kind of picked up on how you know getting you know reading people and reading the mood and figuring out what I want for people maybe try to inspire them or kind of direct them in, in the path I want them to. So which skills do you find contributed to your day to day job? Uh, a lot of the writing I do, just uh, doing a lot of writing always helps in your career, especially in you know, write up a lot of emails, project justifications. So that's always helpful. Uh, just honing those skills because the more you practice writing, the better you're going to be at it. But exactly what you said, you know, I work with directly with a lot of different uh, people throughout my company from people at the end of the line, all the way up to 
vice presidents and different people require uh, different attitudes, different approaches. There's politics you have to play into things and just knowing how to approach a situation and how to adapt to different people's personalities uh, and engage with people on different levels. I think you get a lot of that. Just being at the table, having different players, playing different characters, different NPCs, uh, and just being engaged in different scenarios at, at your table helps a lot. While we're on this kind of talk, topic between the bleed between RPGs and real life, I, I've always wanted to ask other DMs this as well. How much of your game, either in settings or politics or in the adventures you run, do you think is actively a little bit of bleed from you know personal life of whether whatever's happening or what experiences you've had or the politics going on of the day? Because one of the things I found sometimes is when I'm explaining a concept or creating a scenario to my players, then they'll be for using kind of a sort of shorthand to understand it all. They'll be like, oh, this is like, you know, this political system or this is like this, you know, war that happened or this sort of historical event that happened. How much of that do you find happens either consciously or subconsciously? Yeah, I I like to pull pretty heavily from pop culture stuff and movies and different uh, scenarios and then kind of recreate them. A lot of my one shots are inspired by different movies out there. And I always like the idea of, you know, you've seen this movie, you love this movie, your players know it, but now you get to experience it in a different way. And you get to be the heroes in here and you kind of get to write the story the way you want it. And so I pretty intentionally pull things uh, from the world, not necessarily my own personal life as much, but quite often from pop culture and things that are going on, movies and different inspirations along those lines. You never thought of an evil programmer wizard? <laughs> I have not. I, I have to admit, I kind of, because, I, uh, you know, I do finance and accounting. I have had a, a villain whose obsession was with balancing everything and making sure, you know, checks and balances and wanting to correct the world, which, you know, some people would think, you know, Thanos. But I, but for me, I was like, no, evil accountant. You just imagine a guy who looks around at the world and is like, nope, everything needs to be accounted for and everything needs to be in perfect balance. And I can't let one person get too strong or one person be too weak. And uh, thus you have a terrible, terrible villain in the Shadowfell, which my players hate with all all their might, which is the greatest, uh, I think, compliment a DM can get is, is when your players are terrified of a place or, and hate a villain. That's very true. But yeah, so you've been going at this for a while. Um, do you find yourself now, you know, have, well, first let me uh, rewind. How, do you go out to conventions, uh, either board gaming or just general nerdy conventions? I have only... Very recently started doing this. I mean, with the license with the DMs Guild, I have to exclusively sell my content through their site. Even though I have physical books, I can't like order a bunch of them, print them off, and sell them at a convention or anything like that. So I don't have a lot to contribute. Like I can't set up a booth and sell my content, except for my Game Master Toolkit, which I did release on DriveThruRPG under the OGL. So I only have my one book that I could actually distribute. Uh, so when I go to these conventions, it's mostly just to meet people, you know, get some cool artwork. And I, the most recent one that we had in my local town, I, I DM'd some games at. So, but I plan on going to more. I think I'm going to go to Gen Con next year at the very least, just to see some of the people in the industry and just have a good time. Yeah, that's what I, I still to get to because unfortunately it's in this crazy sprint of like San Diego Comic Con, Dragon Con, and I'm just like I can't afford. 
physically i can't the, the toll it takes on you going to conventions and also financially like how how many uh, conventions i'd be going to but i really want to go to that we actually brought up something I, I was completely uh forgetting that i wanted to talk to you earlier about was going into releasing your content online i know uh drive has got a different rules than the dm's guild does but did you take into consideration the legal ramifications and like uh ip rights and things like that because once you do release it I, and i think you confirmed it for me wizard says you cannot sell anywhere else uh than the dm's guild correct yep so i can't even like distribute to my local game store uh i can i've sold my second book there and they, they actually bought a few and supported me but yeah i can't sell any of my my first dungeon master toolkit or my second or my tome of horrifying adventures none of those are allowed to be distributed on any other sites except the dm's guild which is you know one of the big trade-offs make going to the site it's the most popular hub of you know, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. That's where most people go to get their content, and so you pay a premium to be on that platform. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you knew that going into it. You thought it was just worthy uh, sacrifice. So I did my first product on the DMs Guild, and that had a lot of success. And then I said, you know, my second book, I want to be mine. And so that's when I put together my Game Master Toolkit because you can't use Dungeon Master under the OGL. Uh, and I, I put that one together, and this was before the Dungeon Masters Guild offered print copies, and the drive-thru RPG did. And so I said, I'm going to have a book that I can put up on the shelf in my house and say that I made this. And I'm going to have something that I can take to my local game store, and I can sell them a copy, and people in my area will have a book that I created. And so that idea was just like really uh, exciting to me, and so that's where I went with my second book. And then it released, and it did pretty well. But uh, I feel after like the initial hype cycle, I suppose, it, it died off, and the sales there are, are a lot lower than any of my other books now, just because it's not that primary point for people to go. And I think the only reason you know it get they even still get downloads is because I have links to it with my other content. So people download one of my toolkits and see that that one's available out there, and they can go to that. So there's a lot less traffic on that site. And so while you do get a higher percentage of every sale and you have a little more freedom, uh, overall, it resulted in me getting less money. So with my next book, I went back to the DMs Guild. I was like, I've got my one uh, that's that's mine that I can do what I want with. And then these they offered physical books on the DMs Guild again. And so I said, all right, I'm going to go back to that platform. I'm going to have my books, uh, but they'll just be on that platform. And I know you make only uh, mostly content for yourself, homebrew. Are you aware of any of the official release stuff? Do you read it or do you have it at home or anything like that? Yeah, I have uh, quite a few of the, like, ex- like Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Volo's Guide to Monsters, all that. Uh, but I, have, as far as the actual adventures, I think I have the one with the Sunless Citadel in it. I can't remember the name of it now. It's sitting in the other room. Uh, it's like one that has a whole bunch of dungeons uh, collected in it. Tomb of Annihilation, maybe? Yeah, uh, uh, Tomb or it might have been uh, Tomb or Horror, uh, Horrors, maybe? I don't know. We're, we're both in the same situation to where like, we don't want to yeah. leave our computers, but it's somewhere It's somewhere over <laughs> there. We can exactly. look at it right now. Um, yeah. I've never done any of the actual books that run through adventures. Like, I played in Horde of the Dragon Queen and... Uh, 
like one of my other friends ran that as his kind of intro into DMing because, you know, he wanted to run a game. He wasn't super comfortable, you know, making his own world. So he ran that module. But whenever I DM, I really like creating my own worlds, though. I my The current game I'm DMing is set in Ravnica, Magic the Gathering setting that they put out content for. So I have the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. That's not a campaign path. It's like a setting. Well, yeah, that's actually it was going to lead into uh, this question is if, you know, Wizards or Paizo in the case of Pathfinder or, or any one of these companies comes to you and goes, hey, we want you to play in our in our, our ballpark. Um, what sort of content would you want to make? Would you want to make, you know, just, you know, expert, like Xanathar style, like, oh, here's some extra content and systems and ways that you can be a better dungeon master or more monsters? Or would you want to create an adventure or bring an adventure of your own? I was just wondering myself. I think my favorite thing to write are one shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those are what bring me the most joy personally to create. I really like creating monsters, but uh, I think one shots would be my wheelhouse. I, I have created like custom classes and stuff on the side, and and you know, got my hands dirty with all that creative process. But uh, I think doing a full campaign would also be really interesting. And I actually did write some one shots for the guys that do the Total Party Kill handbooks. Uh, 2C Gaming. They they actually contracted me to write some content for them, and I wrote them a couple one shots. So, so yeah, you've had your taste of of that contract life. Mm-hmm. Was it more or less um, uh, difficult to do it when you know you had somebody specifically looking for it from you? Uh, I think it was a little more difficult just because now I'm holding myself accountable to someone else rather than just me. I think it turned out to be like having that second set of eyes look at it because right now i'll have like some of my friends look at it and i always test my content on like my play groups but i don't really have a second set of people come through and like run through the formatting and make sure everything holds up i just i get feedback from my players at the table but no one looks at the content except me right now and that's one of the things i've considered like should i pay for an editor to come through and look at my content how much does that cost you know one of those trade-offs I haven't done it yet. Maybe I should for my future content, something I've been considering. Yeah, man. I also like uh, one of the things I find very hard for myself, uh, never released anything because I, I particularly find this part the hardest, which is balance. Whether it be power of your uh, monsters or adventurers or just considering what the right uh, CR or uh, level base is for things and also not creating broken weapons because, boy, my players will tell you I've given them some broken homebrewed weapons and I've been like, oh, nobody would ever release this. This is too much damage, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, I'm, I'm playing in a homebrew. I can let that fly. I can't imagine how difficult that would be for releasing a widespread content. Yeah, it's... uh. I'm sure a lot of my weapons and monsters are way out of whack. I try to do my best to you know, cross-reference stuff that's uh, in the monster manual and some of the there's like calculators online where you can check the CR of your creatures, but there's a lot of different things to factor in. So I just do the best I can, and uh, I think they work pretty well. I use a lot of my own monsters in my campaigns, and I've had many troubles, but I'm sure if you get you know someone who really knows what they're doing to go through and look at everything, they can find a lot of issues with what I do, but... That's one of the risks you have with uh, third-party content. I do my best. Yeah. And I think uh, regardless of whether it's third-party or not, I mean, there's definitely been classes and things released where people have complained about it. I think there's a sweet science to it that we all haven't perfectly figured out quite yet, ultimately. (laughs) But yeah, so away from technical stuff, I want to get a little more, you know, um, nebulous here. What are the stories or what are the types of adventures you want to create 
from a, like not structure standpoint, but from just like, what do you want to say with the content you create? Oh man. I, I really like creating those moments that stick with you. And for, that's kind of why I go to horror adventures a lot. Like I released a whole book of horror adventures. They've always been my favorite to run because there's always like these moments where I just like look around the table and my players are, are frightened and it feels so good to be sitting there and I'm like, I know exactly what's in that next room. And they're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to open the door. We should leave. We should get out of here. And then like getting to unveil those mysteries versus, you know, uh, you know, just hack and slash sort of combat stuff is, is fun and you can have that awesome adventure, but just putting that pressure on my players and just watching them, contemplate every move they make and just knowing that they're afraid for their characters lives for some reason personally that just that makes me so happy as a, a dungeon master a little sadism there but i think all dungeon, a little bit i think all dungeon masters have sadism you know my, my, my favorite things to do at all times when my players ask like uh you know uh can they do something or will I get it, you know, in trouble or will that be bad is to just smile and not say anything or say you can certainly try. Or the other thing about, you know, like finishing a session saying, all right, guys, should you survive? You should probably level up next round. Wait, 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 wait what do you mean? Should we survive? Like small, small, so subtle things that will um, obviously get under their skin and frighten them. I think we all have that, a little bit of that as dungeon and game masters. So when when then because horror seems to be the thing you're you're most comfortable with, I want to know then when you're trying to create a sense of horror, a sense of terror and anxiety, what sort of like tricks of the trade do you have? I mean, I'm I'll be the first to admit I hide behind music a lot. I'm a, also a musician, so I create custom soundtracks and I have mixers that I'll increase sound effects for and stuff like that. So for me, it's unnerving music and sound cues and you know putting on a theme that usually because they've been playing with me for four plus years now uh, that they understand like oh that no something bad must be happening the music just went from cheery to creepy you know yep i I think music's a really good tool in your anyone's toolkit especially if you're trying to create that sort of atmosphere uh i just use really really descriptive language for everything that happens in my my combat and the enemies themselves and try to paint brutal pictures like you all know, describe how the enemies have their arms shaved down to the bone it's been sharpened to a point bandaged up dripping blood onto the ground with like these twisted smiles and like players at the table just kind of cringe away at the idea of someone who shaved their own arm down to the bone and just peeled away the meat and just you put those pictures in their head because i grew up reading like thriller books dean coon stephen king like that was just my wheelhouse and so i i love just painting that verbal scene for the players and trying to creep them out gross them out and you know get some some disturbed looks but yeah i also combine music with that and just having the right like tone of voice and just uh i really like playing in person because you know you can get like these creepy smiles in their direction you know those sorts of things twist the head or just stare at someone smiling while they're trying to make their decision uh, puts a lot of pressure on them actually brings up the thing real quickly do you have any sort of theater or acting classes or background at all Okay, so totally fine. Um, that's one of the things that I will say I've noticed this becoming a lot more apparent is people who do have or have started and then picked up an improv class or something like that. Uh, Dungeon Masters and Game Masters, I think more in the past, you know, let's say decade or so with this kind of tabletop renaissance have been really, really going deep into that 
probably because of all of our streamers and the critical role effect and things like that, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me wish I had done some of that when I was growing up because I love the theater now and go as much as I can. And I bet it would help with my, my dungeon mastering, but you know, no, no professional background in that regard. And that's fine. The reason I just ask it is because I, I've known people who've played, you know, the game since the inception of, the, you know, the very game began. And that was a very different game than the games we play nowadays. Not just because, you know, 5e is a more streamlined system. And, you know, a lot of the math has been shaved if you're playing, you know, Dungeons Dragons 5e. I know with Pathfinder, it's, you know, more uh, modifiers and more akin to other things like that. And there's other systems where, you know, it fluctuates whether how it's how technical it is or not. But I find this recent wave of players, especially because I do go to conventions very frequently and I'm um, constantly at the tables, you know, either helping out because I know a lot of people who run Adventures League or the, the Adventures, helping them out by uh, playing uh, either along or running the games. There's been a complete shift now into a very actor and th- uh, plot heavy and very focused sort of um, DMing and GMing style, even if they're running a established adventure or module. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, it's just, I, people like to have those really fun experiences, and that's one of the values I hold at the table is, uh, like you said, Pathfinder was a really kind of crunch-heavy system. There's a lot of numbers involved, and I feel like it kind of slowed it down a little. It wasn't quite, I, I prefer 5th edition a lot more. I know that's, some people can love Pathfinder, and it allows you to do so much customization and make such powerful characters, but I really like the idea of like anyone being able to come to the table pretty easily and feel comfortable uh, just rolling up a character. Like I played with my, my mom and sister and all these people who probably wouldn't be able to handle the crunch of Pathfinder, but can with fifth edition. And when you're playing with people like that, you know, making it that interactive storytelling and excitement is how you turn players into fans. That's really awesome. How did you get your family into that? I want to hear the story. <laughs> my, my sister, like, I mean, they know I write these books. And so, um, uh, my sister especially was really interested, and so the last time I went to visit her, I, you know, I brought brought one of my books along and ran one of my adventures for her and her boyfriend and my girlfriend, and we had an amazing time. And I'm hoping to run it again next time we go and visit. But yeah, we've only played that once. And then my mom, she's just curious about what it is I do because she's she's still uh, you know still pretty confused about Dungeons and Dragons even after some quick introductions and explanations. And we tried to host a game, but it kind of fell apart. Uh, but I'm hoping to get her back at the table. Uh, my stepdad was not willing to, to participate. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, stepdad wasn't into it. That's too bad. Because um, I was going to say, what I do uh, think is a benefit for some people who gear less towards maybe the numbers heavy stuff and the more um, role play centric systems is what I what I think of to to make a musical reference if you guys don't mind. Um in in every field there's really great technical musicians who can, you know, do crazy arpeggios or do these really fast lines or all these techniques that seem absolutely absurd. But to be really, really, really good at that, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of knowledge. And, you know, you have to constantly be refreshing that, you know, muscle that whereas uh, the Beatles got really, really, really famous off of, you know, a couple of chords and a couple of ideas. And, you know, the joke is obviously that, you know, even their drummer wasn't the best drummer in the Beatles, but he was good for what they needed. So we, we, I think as people who... I think we both kind of geared a little bit towards that kind of role play centric gaming. Um, we kind of have the benefit of not having to be uh, as you know focused on the the format and the structure and just being able to identify with things that people care about. 
and that makes the story itself. Yeah, and I, I know it's you know one of the constant things like the DM versus players. I I always just try to make the best possible moments of excitement for my players where you know they ask if they can do something. You know that's always the the guidance. You know you say yes and and I, I just want to. I always am so descriptive when they get those crits and just set up those situations and I want them to succeed every step of the way because. I throw hard monsters at them because I want the fights to be exciting. But at the end of the day, I really want them to win. I really want them to have a good time. And so I try to make these fights as epic as possible and make them feel like heroes every step of the way. And I try to incorporate it in my adventures. Uh, and I think I've even framed that up in the, the writing at the beginning where I give like advice. Like, you know, you're running this like Mad Max campaign. You want your players to feel like they're the heroes of this story and give them these epic moments uh for whatever they try to encourage them to do these, you know, daredevil actions and reward them when they do. And, you know, some people are very, you know, we got to make this more difficult. You're breaking my, my game or, you know, you subverted my plans, but uh, I love when they subvert my plans and expectations and roll with it and try to reward them every way I can. And I think we both are in agreement to that though. I'm interested to see your answer to this. Are you somebody who lays the dice as they lay, or do you ever lie about an end result behind the screen? I, I've i done my occasional fudge. Uh-huh. Uh, usually it's like if I know I'm going to kill someone's character at like a low level or something like that. It's pretty much the only time, because certain players, uh, it kind of depends on who it is, because some players like really attach to their characters, and I know they'd be like personally devastated if they lost them. And I'm like, I don't want to turn someone off to the hobby because I killed their character. So I'm not going to do that to them. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've also killed players before. So uh, usually I play the dice as they, they lay. But some sometimes for the sake of enjoyment of people at the table, I, I do some fudging. Yeah, I'll say that phrase that you said about not wanting to turn somebody off. I think that's probably the, you know, I can count on one hand how many times I've actually fudged a die roll. And that's because I I like the idea that the dice are the narrative. So all of us, because mm-hmm. I think you know, uh, what what is it is is reality's uh, weirder than fiction, uh, and and when you make a, a, a amazing monster who all of a sudden can't hit anybody and just gets walloped, that becomes a memorable story than a slugfest. That's I, exactly right. Yeah, that becomes definitely a memorable story, or, or the inverse, to where like somebody you know fails to you know see a simple trap, and next thing you know, like it becomes a larger ordeal so i usually enjoy the hell out of that but the only times i've done it and i'll be honest uh is literally when i'm i'm about to kill a character for either somebody who just started playing like you know intro session or maybe early on and i realized like i don't want or maybe if they've had like a horrible horrible game where all they've had is like natural ones and nothing's going their way and Mm -hmm. i can read that they're not feeling good or they're not you know happy about the, the 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 session or their character those are the only times where i'll understand that like there's something bigger going on here and I want everybody to have fun or I want I don't want to turn people off of this game. So that's the, I think the only like four times I've ever fudged the die rolls in those dramatic cases. And I've done it I, I've done it for dramatic effect as well. I think the thing I do most frequently, and I actually do this it's still rare, but like someone was playing for the first time at the table and someone else rolls and would have killed like the final boss in the session. I was like, all right, they're at one health until the next person who's up who's our new player got to roll and then get the kill on them 
So I got to, you know, like, how do you want to kill this boss? You're the one who takes them down. And so the monster should have died, but instead this new player got to have that, like, I'm the one who took down the boss. I'm the one who got the kill. Really satisfying moment that brought her back to the table, hopefully, or made her first experience really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to hear another person who uh, follows what I think is now just going to become for the rest of all time the old how you want to do this. I think yeah. I, I, I had the pleasure um, – I wish I said this at the time, too. I had the pleasure to meet Mercer the very first Comic-Con that they did right when that show started. So before it kind of blew up, not to be a hipster. Sorry, guys. <laughs> not to be a hipster, but like I just happenstance. They they were not celebrities yet. So they were just walking around, hanging out with other people at San Diego Comic-Con. So you could walk up to them and talk to them. And I, I so wish I had told him back then what I thought, which was as soon as I, I heard, how do you want to do this? I incorporated that in Mad Games. And everybody who I knew started incorporating that in their games. And I'm like... No matter what happens for the rest of your life, understand that in the brotherhood and sisterhood of dungeon masters and game masters, that phrase is going to just become part of our lexicon. Mm-hmm. And it has very much. It's just such, it's perfect. Yeah, because it gives the autonomy back to the player. And in the system, you know, where we're the one who's talking, you know, 90% of, well, we shouldn't be talking 90% of the time, but we are the one who's usually pushing the, you know, action 90% of the time, you know, to hand that over to them is such a gift. And uh, the moments, like you said, are super dramatic too, usually when a big, uh, you know, a finishing boss blow or something like that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, like, the boss is going to die. It doesn't really matter how they die. Like, so as creative as that player wants to be, uh, they get to let their mind run wild and have that story to take with them. How much of your world incorporates your characters, so your PCs' ideas, and how much of it incorporates yours? So, like, if you're starting a new campaign, do you give them, like, guys, here's the briefer of the world and how it works. Make yourself fit into it. Or do you say, give me whatever, and then I'll tell you where you fit? I've done a, a little of each. My two most recent ones were... One's Ravnica, and so that world is obviously like, here's the world, here's figure out how you fit in it. Uh, the one before that was also like, here's my world, here's kind of how things are established. Uh, would you, you know, I kind of gave them the overview, and then a couple of them like created, you know, I want to have this family of nobility or something like that that fits really well into the world. And then my first one was a little more, uh, you know, tell me what you guys want to do or where you want to be from or what influences you have. And I just kind of incorporate those as best as I could into the world, mostly just things regarding their backstories. So one backstory, sure, her her dad, she wanted to be a noble. Mike, how about he's the king of this elvish city? She's like, oh, yeah, that's great. And so rolled with that. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that sounds like a great way to go about it. And you said you've been playing for how many years now with your uh, game? I think it's actually about six years. I've played in multiple different campaigns, though. So still the same people, but different campaigns. I actually play uh, one the my initial group that i started playing with one of our members just had a baby a few months ago so we haven't we haven't had the chance to play lately uh so i'm playing with a different set of people now regularly and then i also play uh online regularly with uh wally dm if you know him he does like a lot of traps and uh puzzle he has a youtube channel i play with him as a player every now and then so yeah, I was going to – I was leading the into that because I wanted to ask you something about, you know, what do you find is the major difference between uh, the way they play or maybe um, the characters that are created from people who we've just started playing with or let's say within the first year and people we've been playing with for years on end? Because I'm seeing some interesting things and I just wanted to see if you're seeing the same things too. I I really like playing with the new table, of, like just seeing how different people approach 
uh, approach things because, you know, like in our my other group, things were usually pretty political and we, we kind of got into the role playing a lot more heavily and it was, it was very like a more serious tone to the group. It was very serious. We all were very much in character almost all the time. Uh, you know, talking in character. This other table that I have, it's a little more goofy. There's newer players there, and they really like to go off the rails with things and come up with uh, wild plans and kind of throw caution to the wind the way our other group never would. And so it just gives you all those new experiences. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, major takeaways from that. You, you really have to I ca- tried to cater my content to what those people would enjoy, and it's it's a lot different depending on the group of people you have. Yeah, and I, and I can give you some time to to mull it over while I say one of the things I do notice and I do like about playing with new people is because they don't know all the rules or all the limitations is everything's kind of free and open to them, and they'll just be like, mm-hmm. "Can I just stand on top of that thing and then drop down on top of his head?" And you're like, "Yeah, that's not technically part of your ability, but you can yeah, you can certainly do that." Or like. Well, what if I just do this? And like, because what I find with people who I've played with for a very, very long time, or people who have been playing RPGs for a long time and know the system well, is they'll go, okay, I know I have these spells and I have these abilities and I can do this. I probably want to, you know, cozy up there to get sneak attack. Like, they've, you know, it's very structured and they know the limitations. Whereas you bring in somebody new, they're like, okay, so what you said he's really greasy, right? So, like, what if I like slather some of his grease onto my arrow and then light it with my torch? Can I like get extra damage on that? Like, that's not something explicitly written in the book, but you're like, yeah, that's right. I like that. I like that. Like, throwing a curveball, that's fun and different, right? Yep. Yeah, by knowing the limitations, you limit yourself and what you're going to do. Because if you're, you know, if you know the rules very well, you're like, well, if I go over there, you know, I'm not going to be able to move without getting the attack of opportunity unless I disengage. Or, you know, if, if he has this ability, then he's going to be able to do this. Whereas new players are just like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's less less metagaming there, too. Um which I think it's great. What I love about your stuff is because you do create uh, custom monsters is I will throw and I've been doing this now with every monster I do, but especially with some of your monsters, I'll throw that stuff out there and you see that recognition of them being like, wait a minute, that's not how that should work. Or wait a minute, I played enough games. This player, you know, this, this monster doesn't have that ability. And I'm like, exactly. I'll make him do whatever I want. You know, they can have three attacks in their level two monster. Who cares? Like, right. So yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of fun to that. And the other takeaways I'll, I'll say uh, on the flip side, when you're playing with somebody for a super, super long time, I think you get a really, really good idea of, like you mentioned, how to play to the audience, exactly what type of characters they like to create and who is into what sort of thing. And that way you can easily, if you need to improv something or you're in the prep stage, you can come up with exactly what you know they're going to enjoy. what the party's going to enjoy but i mean i think both are, are really enjoyable i think one of my favorite moments though was uh and one of the campaigns i was playing recently one of my buddies as the dm used one of my monsters against me and i didn't realize it for quite a while and then i was like oh no <laughs> the guys kind of go wide because i'm like i know what this is and then it <laughs> proceeded to almost kill all of us but he was so excited that i didn't know what it was as i ran up and like hit it and he's like it's just gonna kill him, and I was like, I, I legitimately didn't know what to expect here. Um, man, that's fantastic. So I got some excitement. Yeah, dude, that's fantastic. The student has become the master in that case. That's brilliant, man. Yeah, uh, it was just a really fun experience. Just like, oh no, <laughs> realizing my mistakes. <laughs> 
But yeah, so you and I mentioned talking about other uh, dungeon masters and live streaming stuff like that. What type of content and things out there do you like and inspire you? And also doesn't have to be RPG content. You know, like we mentioned, we both take from reality and I'm musical. So a lot of things that inspire me are songs. I listen to a song or a weird sort of music and then an entire world is inspired by this one weird thing. So what stuff gets you excited? Yeah, uh, honestly... A lot of the times I'll go and see a movie or watch one for the first time or watch a TV show and I'll just see something in there and I'm like, that right there, this one little hook or this one creature, I'm like, that would be a really interesting villain or a really interesting monster or potentially a really interesting one shot. And I'll always, as quickly as I can, pull up my phone, get to Google Docs and write down that idea uh, or even like having really crazy dreams, wake up like, I gotta write this down before I forget it so I can try to make it to an adventure. Um... You know, when I watch other D&D shows, it's usually just to get the ideas for different things to do. Like, I watch Critical Role, and yeah, you learn some ideas of how to be a better dungeon master, potentially, and how to frame things, set things up, the use of music and stuff like that that I didn't do before. Uh, But when it actually comes to the creation of content, it's always, like, external media that gets to me. Yeah, man. I, it's funny you mentioned that. I was at a wedding, a Catholic wedding, ironically enough, with a friend of mine. And I'm looking around at this beautiful church. And I, I turned to him. He plays in one of my games. And I go, dude, I'm going to have so much great world building from this. And he's like, are you <laughs> and he's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, man. Look around. It's all this amazing iconography and like all these rituals and all the structures and like picking up on how, uh, you know, because one of the things I, I think I said at the time was like, I don't think I was doing religions justice. Because I think I was treating them in a weird sort of, you know, a religious kind of Western, uh, European, more American thing to where, yeah, religion's mm-hmm. a thing. But, you know, unless, you know, you're you're a cleric, most people don't pray or don't mention their stuff. And then I stopped and I thought about it, like, no, man, like, there's so much more structure. There's so much more ritual. There's so much more ingrained. Like, for example, how often I heard the word Jesus or our Lord. I realized I did not say that enough for my my clerics and people like that. Like, I need to... So, immediately I was like, more world building, more religion. Get into it. Yeah. And especially depending on the world you have, where like, uh, you know, where the gods or entities in the world influence things very, very directly and people... You can commune with your god and have conversations with them. Like, these are... Uh, like, of course, people are going to be very devout in worlds where you can see their impact and gain magical capabilities from their strength. And so, yeah, that that's one that I had to, it was a struggle for me as well to, to change versus, you know, what exists in, you know, your own personal views or in your world versus what, what is in the game. Yeah, and if you don't mind sharing, I mean, what are some things that, like, we've been at this for some years, but you still go like, you know, I think I should get better at this, or I really want to get into this, you know, learn more about doing X so I can get better at Y. Oh, man. Tough one. That's a, like, the one thing I've done recently was try to uh, really, and this is kind of the newest one, was try to go out and find music to go with uh, my settings and, like, combat and so i built like a bunch of battle playlists for music that can kind of get you hype and then uh i found some different playlists for all these different environments so even just when the players are out and about we always have that ambient music going and then when they're in combat they have that exciting music pumping through and so that's that's one of the ones i was trying to incorporate more recently do you mind if I give you yeah, recommendations? My next big thing is, sure, go yeah, for it. Um, so there's a great site called Ambient Mixer. I think it's Ambient-Mixer, where it's literally that. Like you'll pick an, uh, an ambiance, so let's say a meadow or a cave, 
and you'll get a mixer like you would have in recording. And, you know, you have maybe like the dripping sound and maybe a small stream nearby or the sound of bats. And some of these you can even customize to be like three times per minute. I want the sound of bats to flutter in. You can bring up and down the volume. And that's a, that's something I've been using because it's a free resource. I've been using that for years now because, you know, if you're transitioning to a, a rain, I'll bring up the rain and the thunder. Or, and then if you're going inside, I bring that down and bring up the sound of the fire because you can also make your own custom sounds as well. So import whatever sounds are there. So I think ambient mixer has like been my go-to bread and butter for outside like ambience and land stuff. And then obviously when you get to battles and things like that, I can't tell you what you want to sound like. But what I will say is you're going a great path by picking specific sort of themes and specific sort of things because I do the you know how do you want to do this but I also let everybody have a theme song so they it adds to that you know moment of epicness because your song starts playing but and uh, oh. yeah yeah so like it, it also creates these great puns right so all of a sudden like if somebody's whole thing is you know I like I have a tabaxi monk whose whole thing is I think Katy Perry's I you know I have the tiger hear me roar so all of a sudden she's just you know I'm like all right how do you want to do this and then it, I got the eye of the tiger like it just this whole thing crescendos and it's beautiful um but on the flip side to mess with them if you like the horror stuff they know what my horror themes are they know what my bad themes are so i've created like a pavlov's dog response so like if all of a sudden they're like things are getting hairy or things are getting bad i'll play the apocalyptic music when it's a boss battle and they're like oh no he only plays this for like really bad bosses or really big battles or in or if you're back in a city a city will have a theme or a kingdom will have a theme. So when you play that, all of a sudden you trigger the nostalgia of like, hey, we're back in Raven or we're back in Aberek or, oh, it's the hills of, you know, Pentil. So stuff like that. I really like the idea of the player theme song. And yeah, associating different areas with a different specific soundtrack is a really interesting one as well. That's something to, to mess with because Ravnica is like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Ravnica yeah, setting. Yeah. It's like this you know giant city and, you know, being able to associate like different districts or guilds, like when you're in a conclave for the Selesnia versus at a Rakdos circus, you know, I have some music going, but if I, uh, yeah, I like the idea of having just the music kicks on, and you know, exactly where you're at. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a shorthand and, and we as dungeon masters do this all the time. We, we use shorthand to con- convey our ideas either through real world references and for your players, then you'll also understand like, Hey, if this is kind of a comical character, if you have a funny like pizzicato strings thing, it adds to the shorthand of like, oh, this person's comical and Luffy and all over the place. But if all of a sudden you have like really low, mournful and maybe kind of darker um, cellos, then next thing you know, they go, oh, this, uh, you know, and also cellos are really great. Like low cellos are great for like maritime and so, sort of dreary characters anyway. So you're like, oh, there's a completely different feel to them. So when you get really, really in depth like me, because I'm a musical nut and you have all these folders, <laughs> even the specific, you know, villains will have themes. So every time you fight them, you'll curse that violin, you know, thing that you heard. Because, you know, when you're in a boss battle, you're I'm playing these things on loop for two hours, right? Eventually it becomes yeah. background music, but I know it's still there because if I play the music again, they'll be like, oh no, no, it's the it's the shadow fell again. I know that song. <laughs> uh, That's amazing. But yeah, man, we're coming up kind of close to the end of our time here. I'll ask you, Stephen, is there anything you want to promote or anything you want to shout out? Yeah, the only thing I've got in the works at the moment is my Dungeon Master Toolkit 3. All the content's done. I'm working on editing and working on art. I've had some delays. My artist had some real life stuff come up. And so doing what I can to, to get all the content ready for the art to be integrated. But hoping to have that out in the next couple months but it kind of depends on i i really don't want to have to pivot to another artist so i hope she can she can get everything figured out and get back in there but but yeah um 
should have you know another. I think this one has seven one shots, and then another hundred monsters in there. Some more puzzles for everyone, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to to release some. There's some really probably two or three part one shots in this one, so. Uh, not really. The term one shot doesn't really fit anymore. More of an ad- adventure, micro adventure, I suppose you could say that way. So they're gonna. It's gonna be a lengthy book, but it's gonna be these these longer spanning adventures. And Stephen, where would they go on the internet to find you and your content? You can go to the DMs Guild and just search for Nerzigal. I have a Facebook page. It's Nerzigal RP. Uh, if you want to just follow me in there, anytime I release new content, I'll post in there. But that's pretty. I've pretty much only post when I'm creating new things or, you know, when something's launched. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Nerzical and I post new things about my content on there as well. And if you guys want to follow me, it's at Classy underscore Don. That's D-O-N on Twitter. It's that same thing, on, uh, I believe, on Instagram as well. But this podcast, you can find it on Podbean, iTunes, and anywhere where uh, RPG podcasts or just podcasts in general can be found. Aside from that, thank you, Stephen, for listening. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'll see you next time at the table.